The winner is. 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 And the winner is. What's the like of seeing your luggage? Sometimes. That means sometimes. There can be a hundred people in a room. Maybe there is right now. I know it's tuna, but it, it says chicken. I don't know her. She always has these long lists of like diva demands. Cheetos and Doritos. Great gowns, beautiful gowns. I understand you embrace the term diva. Hello Divas, Divos, and Divs. Welcome back to another episode of Diva Dailies, where we deconstruct divas in film, television, and music. This is Angie, one of two co-hosts of this podcast, and we are officially in the second half of this Whitney Houston four-week event. But before we get into that and bring out our co-hosts, let's do a bit of housekeeping. If you're interested in following us, you can find us on social media at Diva Dailies Pod, on Instagram, Twitter, threads and tiktok and if you want to talk to us via email or voice message hit us up at divadailiespod at gmail.com and without further ado i hear sandra o wafting in the background the queen is coming hello steffi and hello gupta <laughs> I haven't heard you say that in a while. It, it feels like a hot minute. It feels like a minute because we've been two weeks into Whitney and I have been playing the Jamaican horns for you to come right. on the pod. So. Facts. Facts. We always <laughs> miss Sandra O on yes. this pod. So Absolutely. How are you doing? I am doing good. How are you doing? You know, chilling, vibing. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, listeners, I think we just got to get into this episode. We can't spend too much time on our intro because this is a long one. We did get some listener feedback, but we're not going to go through that at all. But just know that we saw it. So like shout out to Scott, Jasmine, okay. and Aaron, all these different people that have replied back with their thoughts on yeah. the album and our thoughts. Just want to say there are also some other oh yes dissenters so i am not the only oh one that does gosh. not like that song oh mm-hmm. my gosh mm-hmm. people with no taste okay i'm joking well <laughs> this is coming from the person that doesn't like the techno cumbia fair fair Okay, there we go. Okay, all right. Okay, well, um, you guys, we hope you enjoy the part one of our era breakdown. I'm trying to think of disclaimers. Okay, well, obviously, like, there's talk of drug abuse. Absolutely. Oh. Abuse in general. Toxic relationships, yep. yes. Mm-hmm. Mr. Beresford yes. is mentioned quite a bit in this episode. Um, also, if, like, you guys are not team Whitney Robin or team, like, Whitney was sexually fluid. Oh. You are not going to like this episode. We're just letting you know. So. This is not the episode for you, okay? Okay, so I think that's pretty much it. And then we'll see you guys on the other side for the closing. Welcome to part three of our Whitney Houston's My Love Is Your Love Diva Discography episode. When doing these Diva Discography episodes where we talk about a specific album, the conversation is going to be divided into two parts. But in this case... It's going to be divided in three parts. We'll see how this recording goes. (laughs) (laughs) 
But usually it's divided into two parts. We're now on part three. Okay. Part one, part one and two in this case was reviewing the album track by track, which we did for the past two weeks. I hope you loved our conversation. And if you haven't listened to those episodes, please go back and listen to those episodes. And then for part three, we are going to be reviewing the era, talking career context, scandals, controversies, music videos, live performances, how the album era was marketed, stats, and cultural legacy and impact. Just reading that. That's a lot. This is this That's it's a, a lot. lot. I don't know why we thought we could do all of that in one episode. <laughs> Maybe because when we were constructing this, we had certain people in mind. Absolutely. But then you get to certain people like Whitney Houston or yeah. like Janet Jackson or Madonna or Mariah Carey. You're like, oh, my Lanta. How do you do that in one episode? Oh, my God. So yeah. Yeah. That might be revised in future seasons, <laughs> listeners. It's going to be revised when we're, we're doing Janet and Whitney. <laughs> yeah, specifically. <laughs> So, are we ready to get started? We are. Let's do this. I'm ready. This is going to be (laughs) the Steffi and Whitney episode. (laughs) Pretty legendary, if you ask me. I love it. And this era will always have such a close place in my heart. Like, I cherish every era. Okay, here we go. This is Popcorn and Pop Stars. This is where we give career context. So, Steffi, where was Whitney Houston at in this point of her career? Oh, my goodness. So, (laughs) everybody, let's take a deep (laughs) breath. Okay, so prior to My Love is Your Love, strictly looking at her career, she was in her actress slash movie soundtrack era. So, of course, she makes her film debut at the beginning of the decade with The Bodyguard. Need we say more? We're not going to get into that because we already did an episode about (laughs) it. Listen to that episode because that's Angie's first appearance on this podcast. And I... But really quick notes about The Bodyguard is, aside from it still being the best-selling movie soundtrack of all time to this day, Mm -hmm. it historically won her album of the year at the Grammys, and that made her the second African-American woman to win album of the year, and still only one of three. Unfortunately. I know, unfortunately. Shout out to our Miseducation of Lauryn Hill episode. See, it's all connecting. It's all connecting. Right, right. The Bodyguard, original soundtrack album, Whitney Houston. Producers David Foster, Narada, Michael Walden, L.A. Reid, Babyface, Whitney Houston, David Cole, Robert Claviles, and B.B. Wine. I'd like to thank everybody on the stage here tonight. <laughs> you guys are wonderful. I love you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this. This is so nice. Thank you, Mommy and Daddy. I love you. Oh, just thank everybody. Bobby, Christina, I love you, baby. It's time to go to bed. Bye. I love you. Thank you. But in the lead up to My Love is Your Love, she had completed three additional films. And I just want to say, we will be doing all of these movies at some point. 
on this podcast. Yeah. But the first movie that she does post Bodyguard is, of course, 1995's Waiting to Exhale, which was directed by Forrest Whitaker. It's a movie adaptation from Terry McMillan's 1992 novel, Waiting to Exhale. And in that film, she co-starred with Layla Rashawn, Loretta Devine, and fellow Leo Angela Bassett. Savannah, Bernadine, Robin, Gloria. Four friends <laughs> determined to face reality. The one man I love is married and got a kid. You tell her baby girl that her daddy loves her. To find the perfect love. Michael is not pretty, but he's available. You get the best loving in the world when a man is begging. Oh! to take control of their lives. I'm leaving you for her. You wait a minute. I give you 11 years of my life and you're telling me you're leaving me for another woman. Then, in 1996, she does The Preacher's Wife, directed by Penny Marshall, and that is actually a remake of the 1948 film The Bishop's Wife, where she co-starred with Courtney B. Vance and the man, spoiler alert, she should have ended up with by the end of the movie. Of course. Denzel Washington. Yes, we were rooting for the angel. Yes. We root for her to cheat in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is the story of an angel. <laughs> My name's Dudley. I'm here in answer to your request. My request? For help? A preacher. <gasps> and his wife. This is Dudley, the Reverend's new assistant. Who sent you exactly? The top man himself. Now that's what I call good looking. My toilet is broken. Let's see what I can do here. What they needed was a miracle. They never had a siren. They got him instead. But important to note with The Preacher's Wife is that Whitney Houston was paid $10 million to be in that film, which at that time not only made her one of the highest earning actresses, but also made her the highest earning African-American actress at that time which is really wild because you're like, this isn't even like your thing. Right. You're a singer, yet you're the highest paid actress yeah. among your black female peers. Yeah. And this is the era of like the divas of black cinema, like Angela Bassett and yes. you know Halle Berry and all of that. Yeah. This is their era. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I wonder how they felt about that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in me. And Hollywood believes in the star power of Whitney Houston. In just four short years, Houston has changed the way Hollywood looks at the money-making potential for black films, and she has become one of its most bankable actresses. I'm very careful about what I do. I don't want to be the consummate actress. I don't want to be the everything. I don't, you know. I just wanted to choose projects that I thought were substantial, that had a good cast, a supporting cast, because I'm not afraid to say that I'm not the greatest actress in the world, nor do I try to be, you know? And I don't think that Hollywood wants me for that. I think they want me for the, the singing along with the acting so that it goes hand in hand. And then, of course, Whitney goes on to co-produce and star as the fairy godmother in Roger and Hammerstein's Cinderella in 1997, or as we like to call it on this podcast, Whitney and Brandy's Cinderella. Yes. TBD to when that episode of Diva Dailies will ever come out. <laughs> but the world is full of zanies and fools who don't believe in sensible rules and won't believe what sensible people say. And because these daft and dewy eyed dopes keep building up impossible hopes and 
visible. Things are happening every day. We definitely recorded that. I, I feel bad that that episode still hasn't come out yet because if you would have listened to that episode, it really would have set this mm-hmm. era up. Yeah, yeah. But don't worry, it'll, it'll come out. We should do like a Cinderella theme. Oh. Like a month of Cinderella's. Oh. And then we will talk about every iteration of Cinderella and that means because she's trying to get back to who are we trying to get back to we have the Venn diagram this is like those the tiny sliver where Whitney Houston and Kate Blanchett oh my my gosh it's the wonderful world of Whitney tonight and for this special premiere she brought along her husband and her little girl Bobby Christina who was part of the inspiration for this project her eyes sparkle they light up with imagination and with dreams that she makes come true bobby how proud of her are you i couldn't even explain it in words i couldn't explain it in words i'm very proud very extremely i couldn't have done it without him how soon before we see the two of you do something together real soon real soon real soon but now similarly to the bodyguard all of these film projects had accompanying soundtracks which were very successful in their own right with the exception of course for cinderella because of label disputes but to me that is what sets whitney houston apart from some of the other divas that forayed into film it's not just this is a pop singer that wants to do a movie when it comes to whitney houston doing movies an accompanying soundtrack is inevitable And when Whitney Houston does soundtrack albums, they are treated like serious albums and projects. So going to the Waiting to Exhale soundtrack, you know, it doesn't just feature Whitney Houston. For those of you guys who haven't heard that album yet, you should. But it also features other really notable Black female singers like Aretha Franklin, Patti LaBelle, Shaka Khan, Tony Braxton, Mary J. Blige, TLC, Brandy, Shantae Moore. I'm sure I might have missed some, so apologies. But that album was nominated for 11 Grammys and including Album of the Year. And notably with the Waiting to Exhale soundtrack, Whitney has her 11th and final number one single with Exhale Shoop Shoop. All you gotta do is say Then she does the Preacher's Wife soundtrack for the Preacher's Wife movie. And that not only became the first gospel album by a female artist to debut at number one on the Billboard Top Gospel Album charts, but it is still to this day the best-selling gospel album of all time. So yes, career-wise, Whitney spent most of the 90s focused on truly becoming and being a multi-hyphenate artist. And not only was she already one of the most successful singers of her time and arguably of all time, really, but she was forging a film career 
and finding success, so much so that towards the end of the decade, she's starting to produce for film and TV, which she would continue to do in the 2000s with projects like The Princess Diaries and The Cheetah Girls. And then on top of all of that, she was touring the world. Just four short months after having a baby, Whitney Houston is back on the road. She got married to Bobby Brown. Have we picked a date yet for this wedding? Well, yeah, but we're not saying it yet. <laughs> and she became a mother. This is Bobby Christina Brown. I don't think I will ever do anything greater than have a baby. I mean, it is the most incredible thing. And got deeper and deeper into her drug addiction, which will set us up for upcoming segments in this episode. <laughs> oh, that was a setup right there. Oh, my Lanta. I know that was that was a lot. I, I feel bad that I've been talking for like a good chunk of this already. So I want to ask you oh. a question, a really easy question. Okay. Which is, um, what's your favorite Whitney Houston movie? Oh. Since we kind of just breezed through a good chunk of them. Mm. That's a hard one. Yeah. It, uh, it depends on how I'm feeling. I swear to fucking God, if you say sparkle. <laughs> um. No, I would probably say, oh. You get like different aspects of Whitney yeah. in those films, which yeah. is really interesting. I feel like if I were to rank it, just like oh, because you're queen of ranking, queen of ranking. Angie loves to rank. Sparkle five. Yes. All right. I would say number probably number one is Bodyguard. Mm. Number two, Preacher's Wife. Number three is Waiting to Exhale. Because there's so many quotables. And she's in it longer yeah. than Cinderella. Yeah. Cinderella, she's only in it for like a good chunk. Yeah. She's fire in that chunk, but she's only in it in that chunk. Uh-huh. So then number four is Cinderella, five, Sparkle. I think I would, for the most part, agree with that. But my heart would probably interchange the bodyguard with the preacher's wife. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because I think the preacher's wife to me is like my favorite Whitney Houston movie. It's my favorite Whitney Houston role. I yeah. feel like that's such a such a comfort movie to me. It and I is, think yeah. in terms of the characters that she plays, like that's my favorite character because Rachel Marin, low-key a bitch. You don't know what you're going to get <laughs> from key. her. High key. Yeah. High key, low-key a bitch. Um, Savannah, like I love that you're a career woman, but... <laughs> Are you going to show up at the airport to pick up my man? Savannah, that's a good man. Yeah, that's a good man, Savannah. (laughs) He's a good man, Savannah. A good man. I mean, fairy godmother, of course, iconic. Yeah. But I feel like you would only see her when times are troubled. Right. So it's like if she pops up in your life, that's that's not good. Exactly. Um, her character in Sparkle, she's a fucking hater. (laughs) So That leaves us with Julia in The Preacher's Wife. <laughs> yeah. No, I love The Preacher's Wife. The Preacher's Wife is like a Christmas special for me. Like, I love yeah. sitting and watching The Preacher's Wife. But I feel like I always have to be in the mood, too. Oh, does it make you sad? If it's on TV, I'm going to watch it. Yeah, yeah. But for me to seek it out, I prefer to watch The Bodyguard because The Bodyguard it's just hilarious and shenanigans and yeah. I know it like the back of my hand like uh-huh. that's my comfort movie right you know yeah 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 the drama of it all her slicing and dicing with that sword in the basement really does it for you <laughs> every single time yeah well next question yes why do you think Whitney Houston did this album what do you think she was trying to accomplish with this album 
Okay, so my love is your love. I think a lot of people tend to forget, but when they were going in for a new album cycle, this was actually supposed to be a greatest hit CD. But then they started getting new material, and that's when they, they decided, let's just make a brand new album. This actually started out, My Love Is Your Love started out originally being a greatest hits record. Yes, it did. How did it sort of become, evolve into a new one? I got a call one day and said, it's not it. It's not a greatest hits anymore, Whitney. It's going to be an album. Uh -huh. we, um, we just started getting songs in, man, that just sounded like an album. You mm -hmm. know, and, I, and Clive and I said, forget it. Let's just go for it. Which then that makes sense why they did it in such a short amount of time. I believe like five to seven weeks. Now the record is great and you're getting rave Thanks. reviews. Thank you feel you. good? Yes, yeah. I do. Were you nervous much. at all? I don't, I don't think so. I did this record in six weeks. Really? Yeah, I did 13 songs in six weeks. I did. That's a lot of work. A lot of work. Yeah. Lots. But I think it's better that they ended up making a brand new studio album instead of a greatest hit CD at the time. And here's why, girls. So, <laughs> one... Whitney, at this time, she needed a studio album. Because Whitney was in her soundtrack bag, that technically meant that her last studio album was 1990's I'm Your Baby Tonight. Therefore, an eight-year gap between I'm Your Baby Tonight and My Love Is Your Love. So there was like a general desire from the public of wanting a new Whitney Studio album, especially when you consider at this time her diva peers were releasing new music. In 1997, we get Mariah Carey's Butterfly. And Janet Jackson's The Velvet Rope. And at the beginning of 1998, you get Madonna's Ray of Light. So, just wanted to say, happy that we have episodes for all of those albums. So, listen to that. <laughs> yes. But... In the midst of all of these women releasing great music, it's like, where the fuck is Whitney Houston? Right. So even while she's promoting her movies, she's being asked like, so what's next? Like, when are you gonna make a new album? You think you're gonna concentrate more on that or you're gonna constantly have a mixture of singing and... Well, you know, it just turned out that way, you know? I, I did a movie soundtrack, did a movie soundtrack. So I, I don't know, I think the next thing I'll do is probably just a regular album, you know? And just do Good, it that get way. get back to that. Yeah. Then, kind of tied into that because she spent so much time in the movie world there was kind of this unfair perception that Whitney wasn't busy right. in the 90s but the thing is she was busy in a different capacity right. even though we know her primarily as a singer I can remember just getting a call from Clive one day or a letter saying Whitney we miss you we want you to come back meaning it's time to come back to your real job, as he puts it, you know, because I had done all these movies and soundtracks and stuff, and I was kind of comfortable with that, you know. And I hadn't even thought about making a studio album. It just didn't cross my mind, because I thought I, was, I did albums. I was working, remember? Right? But I did like half an album, three songs here, and then 
13, 15 songs in the whole gospel track. But Clive said, no, we need, we, need, we need you. We need you to be in a studio recording and to make a record. A huge thing, too, with that is a good chunk of the time that she was in the news, it was largely because of her marriage to Bobby Brown. That part. Now, Whitney and Bobby, they have been dogged by rumors every step of the way, from romance to marriage to breakup to makeup. Now, Bobby talks in his own words about his private problems and about life with Whitney. But first, more headaches for Whitney Houston tonight. Husband Bobby Brown is back in trouble with the law, and now a family friend reveals whether or not he's in trouble with his wife as well. And the latest on the trouble with Whitney and Bobby next on ET. Only on Extra, Whitney Houston and the tough questions about Bobby Brown. And all of his mess. That part. Bobby Brown is behind bars today. Accused of hitting his wife, totaling a Porsche on Ocean Drive in Hollywood. The R&B singer burst into tears. Urinated on the backseat of the deputy's patrol car. This isn't fair. This ain't fair, man. So, in terms of what she was trying to accomplish, for me, I have reinvention. Because, again, there was an eight-year gap between I'm Your Baby Tonight and My Love Is Your Love. Like we talked about in the first episode, like a lot of time has passed. So music has evolved and taste has changed. Absolutely. So hip hop's influence on R&B and pop music is evident. Mm -hmm. We love your new approach with this new album. Thank it's, you. it's great. It's not Thank the Whitney you. we knew and it's, it's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Um, what made you take this new, new avenue? What made me take this new avenue because there's a new breed of music out there, man. It's called hip hop and it's taken over the place. It's bottom line. Um, you got to be in it to win it. You know what I mean? Whitney Houston and Clive Davis, like we said before, they're really smart and they know when it's time to pivot right. and it was time to pivot. So if she wants to stay relevant, especially when you remember that now she's in her mid 30s and there's this pop narrative, especially when it comes to women, like you're aging out of pop music. Right. And at that time, too, there's so many young up and coming pop stars by the tail end of the 90s. You have like Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera and yep. Brandy and Monica and Aaliyah. Like she needs to update her sound and look, right. which listen to our previous Mariah, Janet and Madonna episodes like that's exactly what her diva counterparts were doing at this time. So it makes sense that she would like follow suit. Right. Now video, all the lads in the office have had it on for a while and they're saying you look your freshest, your youngest, your sexiest you ever really? have. Yeah, so what was the inspiration oh, behind the look? Bobby. Really? Mm-hmm. He encourages me to stay on what scene is, you know, hip hop scene, because it's, it's a nation now, it's taken over. So the music is different, the look is different, the style is different, it's a little more grittier, it's a little it's a little to the earth, one more street, you know. And I, I come from that too. I know that. I am from the projects, Brick City, so I know what it's all about too. So it's just a matter of just going back. Another thing that I have here that she was trying to accomplish was this idea of trying to refocus the narrative from chaotic life in the news back to the music. Right. Because like I said earlier, the Whitney and Bobby brand is starting to be the main focus. Absolutely. Especially since Bobby's always in the news, and because he was in the news, Whitney would then end up having to answer for her husband's whereabouts. Right. But um, I, I was kind of spent. Yeah. And uh, I had to take a family vacation with my family. My husband, hi, honey. Hi, honey. Your husband I, who is at home? My husband's at home. He's at home in Florida. I don't know what anybody else thinks, but he's home sleeping this morning. Okay, good. Because I, okay. I thought he was somewhere else. Yeah, we did too, but he's Somebody, not. He I ain't mean, there. He ain't there. He's home. He's he home ain't in there, bed. baby. No, All right. 
daddy is home. That's good to know. Which sucks because when you think about like literally up until this point, she had the pristine The Voice brand. Right. But as soon as he came into the picture, he started to tank that. Yeah. And she was really cultivating that. Like, not just her, but everyone at Arista and her team. Like, they were really cultivating that throughout her entire career. Right. And now she's at this point where, because he's always in the news, she's having to answer for what he's doing. Yeah. And anything that he does is not only going to affect her on a personal level, but it's going to affect her image and brand because now Bobby Brown is part of that. Right. Well, shall we talk about you? Well. (laughs) I know, listen, listen, everybody wants to get into Whitney's business, and as a person who lives my life in the tabloids too, this is how we're going to handle this today. You tell us whatever it is you want us to know. Let's put it like this. We're here to talk about Exhale. My life is none of your business. <laughs> I'm gonna try one more time. Okay. <laughs> All right. Just tell us how Bobby is. Just just, just straighten out for us what we read in the tabloids well, versus what is true. How Bobby is Bobby? Is how fine. are y'all doing? We're doing fine. Bobby is fine. And that's all I want to say. And that's all she wants to say? Yep. Well, we're gonna take a... Thank she, you, baby. I also want to talk about the weight of the year 1997. Yeah, go ahead. Because as you stated before, yes, Jen is dropping stuff, Madonna, Mariah, but it's also the year of the other big divas too. Yeah. Celine Dion. Yeah. She's having a soundtrack moment with My Heart Will Go On, Titanic drops. She drops the album, uh, Let's Talk About Love. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about And then there is the, the crossover of country music. And who drops in 1997? <laughs> Let's go, girls. Uh, Shania Twain. She dropped the album, Come On Over. Oh, 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 get in the action. Feel the attraction. Cover my head, do what I dare. Oh, 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 I wanna be free, yeah. Feel the way I feel. Man, I feel like a woman. Hey! We're having uh, a huge diva era moment in 1997 and it's not like Whitney Houston is irrelevant no you know she is still part of the conversation she's still relevant to pop culture also at the time too a greatest hits meant you were a has-been like you're just gonna step into like a different era you Uh know kind of like a end-all be-all unless you did it like a, a Janet Jackson with the design of the decade where it was just like all right we need an in-between situation. Right. Or even like Michael Jackson's history because right. the first part of that album is That's true, yeah. literally like a greatest hits and then the second was new material. Right. I think in that era of 1997 going into 98, had she dropped a greatest hits, it would have hit different. 
you know? Mm, yeah, yeah. Because all these other divas are coming out with new material, everybody is reinventing themselves, you know what I'm saying? Right. So to then just come out with a greatest hits, it's like, oh, she can't keep up. Right. That could have been the narrative, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I think that it was a really good point on their part to drop a new album. Right. And she had a reinvention of herself in that era too so you know yeah in so many ways in so many ways in so many yeah. ways yeah well we're gonna get into that <laughs> should, should we get into it now yeah let's go for it uh, oh my lanta who is it mrs potts dear i thought you might like a spot of tea here we go we are going to get into our next little segment called spill the technicolor tea this is part of the show where we talk about any scandals and controversies from this era and as stated before there's about to be a ton of tea because this was a very controversial era at times yeah but let's let's get into it it's like nice to have a little tea party every once in a while all right well the thing with (laughs) my love is your love is the threads that were already kind of beginning to unravel in the earlier and mid 90s like they really start to unravel here and what ends up transpiring in my love is your love and how the era ends is going to set up whitney houston not just for her following era which is just whitney and it's not a good era because that is like the crack is whack era that is the being bobby brown era yeah first of all let's get one thing straight Crack is cheap. I make too much money to ever smoke crack. Let's get that straight, okay? We don't do crack. We don't do that. Crack is whack. But ultimately, like a lot of the decisions that are made in this era kind of sets up how Whitney Houston's life is going to be like until she dies, which may sound really dramatic. But no, that's, but that's it. if you do the research, yeah. it's true. Yeah, yeah. And for me i feel like this era truly represents major forks in the road absolutely which we're going to talk about in 0.25 seconds (laughs) (laughs) so here we go the first point i have here is like i've been alluding to that bobby brown and whitney houston become huge tabloid fodder yeah so it's no secret that they had a very chaotic toxic relationship and I don't want to spend this time detailing every single thing that went wrong in the relationship. I don't want to do that. And we just genuinely don't have the time to do that because that's how much went wrong. But just like a general gist is, so they married in 1992. A big wedding in New Jersey today. Superstar Whitney Houston tied the knot with super singer Bobby Brown. It happened at Houston's mansion in New Jersey where neighbors spent the day trying to sneak a peek. Carlos Granda has more. At this time, it's really important to remember that when they got together, Whitney and Bobby were kind of like equalish. Mm-hmm. To me, Whitney was bigger, but the disparity between her star and his star was not as big. Absolutely. If you were looking to bet money three years ago when Bobby Brown split from the popular singing group New Edition to begin a solo career, that today he would be one of the biggest names in the music business, you probably wouldn't have had many takers. But it's a bet Bobby surely would have taken, because this once little boy from Boston's Orchard Park housing development 
has always believed he was destined for the limelight. And they said I was crazy, huh? My prerogative, along with Don't Be Cruel and Every Little Step, helped his album go seven times platinum. Bobby Brown! Bobby Brown! Bobby Brown! He was the it guy of 1989. So while detailing their relationship, it's really important to remember where Bobby Brown was at in his career. Mm -hmm. So really quickly, in August of 1992, Bobby Brown released Bobby, which was his follow-up to Don't Be Cruel. That was his big album from the 80s. And on Bobby, he had songs like Humpin' Around. And good enough. And that album was relatively successful. It peaked at number two on the U.S. charts, certified two times platinum. Also notably on that album is when him and Whitney Houston have their duet, Something in Common. Right. In hindsight, a really unfortunate song title choice. Right. (laughs) Because I remember growing up when Bobby and Whitney would be in the news all the time. I remember like reading headlines and news commentators being like, they definitely have something in common. Like as a child, I don't even think I realized that that was a song or maybe I did, but I didn't. I didn't know that song because by that point, like they weren't really playing that song on the radio. Right, right. I more so knew the phrase something in common in the context of both of them being addicts. So, yeah, unfortunate song title choice. Bobby Brown had multiple arrests ranging from marijuana possession to drunk driving and various parole violations. But Whitney stood by her man, even recording a duet. They also shared escalating drug use. But back to 1992. (laughs) We have to remember what happens in 1992. The bodyguard happens. You've got your popcorn, your beverages, and your remote. You're ready. But do you have the number one album in the world for 20 weeks? The Bodyguard Original Soundtrack Album, featuring the world's number one female artist, the incomparable Whitney Houston. And that's when the chasm widens dramatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in 1993, like a couple months after The Bodyguard is released, Bobby Brown was nominated for Best R&B Male Vocal for Humpin' Around. He loses. Mm-hmm. The following year, Whitney Houston is nominated for several Grammys, and she wins Album of the Year, Song of the Year, and Best Female Pop Vocal. Mm-hmm. And the Grammy goes to Whitney Houston! And the record of the year is, I will always love you, Whitney Houston, David Foster. You know, and he's there with her during that entire run. 
Right. Thank you, everybody. Thank everybody who bought this record, who loved it. God bless you. Peace. So Bobby wouldn't release a new solo album until 1997, which is his album Forever. Which is crazy. It only had one single, did not do well. Right. So, like Whitney, Bobby had a gap between his albums. A five-year gap. But, unlike Whitney, Bobby was just being Bobby. (laughs) Right. Exactly. He was in and out of rehab. Whitney Houston showed no signs of distress at last night's premiere of the Waiting to Exhale soundtrack. Her husband, Bobby, checked into the Betty Ford Center for drug and alcohol abuse. He was getting in trouble, or if he wasn't in trouble, he was somehow involved in the scene. Like, there's this story about a friend of his getting shot right in front of him. Yeah, yeah. Brown has had several brushes with the law. Last month, he dodged death when a gunman opened fire on his car in Boston, killing his future brother-in-law. There were rumors of him being violent with Whitney. Yeah. He's fed up with tabloid reports that say he hit his wife. So he came to E.T. to set the record straight. I mean, it's garbage talk. Anybody that would say I would put a hand on my wife. Nevertheless, a woman, period. You know what I'm saying? My wife. Then they got to be out of their they minds. You know what I'm saying? I'm a, I'm a man. There were also rumors that he was cheating on Whitney, which, by the way, not A far reach from the truth because he got his first baby mama pregnant while he was engaged to Whitney Houston. So it seems very plausible that he was cheating on her throughout the 90s. Absolutely. People ring the doorbell, young lady saying, oh, this is his baby. And upon reflection in Whitney's last interview with Oprah, she admitted that she believed Bobby was jealous of her. Was he jealous of you? He's not going to like this, but yes. Mm-hmm. I think somewhere inside, mm-hmm. something happens to a man when a woman has that much control or has that much fame. Yeah. If he doesn't have his own. doesn't have his own. Has to have his own. You know what I'm saying? So, so during those years, because yeah. that was going to be my next question to you. I don't know how you live in a world where you are Bobby Brown, And really, you're in the shadow. You're in the shadow. Yeah. And so, because of that, he would act up, or as Robin Crawford put it, perform. Yeah. He had a way of just like, you just never knew when he was going to perform, and that's what I call it. Perform. You know, he was going to show out. Mm Abusive. Well, just show out, just anywhere we could be. And because she sensed his jealousy, Whitney would try to dim herself down. Dim her light. Yeah. So that he wouldn't feel bad about himself. So in her interview with Oprah, she talked about reminding people that she's Mrs. Brown. Call me Mrs. Brown. Right. All the time. I but tried the- to play down yeah. all the time. Yeah. I did. I tried to play. I'm Mrs. Brown, everybody. Yeah. Don't call me Mrs. Houston. I'm Mrs. Brown. Good morning, Mrs. Houston. How are you? Mrs. Brown. Mrs. Brown. How are you? 
Can I just ask okay. you real quick, Miss Houston? Mrs. Brown, man. Mrs. Mrs. Houston Brown. Yes, darling. And when you think about that right now, when you're just even hearing you say that, like the little hairs right here, all my little so-called baby hairs, just to, <laughs> because you're Whitney Houston. Yeah. She also tried to include him in her stuff. Lots of examples here. Like in 1997, they did a show in Hawaii and Bobby Brown was her opening act. And she went on stage during his set list, but she was performing as a background vocalist. But she wore a big ass hat so she wouldn't upstage him. I'm an open for. Oh, right. And I haven't opened for anybody in a long time. So it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of actor. fun. In Hawaii, Bobby was indeed the opening act. If I was you and you were me, you want to be winning. Whitney even made a rare appearance as a backup singer, totally incognito so as to not upstage her husband. There's a clip of them going to film her I Learned from the Best music video, and he was on set. And it's, like, really funny because it's an MTV special. It's really funny. You, like, see them in the car. The car stops, and Whitney pops her head out. She's like, hey, MTV, it's Whitney. And then, like, Bobby Brown pops his head out of the window, too, and he's like, and I'm here, too. And then she's just like, we know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here too. We know. A really good example of this idea too of her like trying to dim herself down is at the 2000 Grammy Awards when she wins Best R&B Vogue Performance for It's Not Right But It's Okay. Yeah. She dedicates her award to Bobby Brown and calls him, quote, the original R&B king. Annoying. And the Grammy goes to... Rod Digger. <laughs> Whitney Houston! <laughs> and honey... This one's for you, the original R&B king. I love you. This for y'all. Baby Chris, I love you, baby. Which, taking all of this into consideration, this is why it makes sense why she would say yes to doing Being Bobby Brown. Right. A literal train wreck. Yeah. Angie thoughts. <laughs> Oh, so much. It's it's unfortunate that we see this amazing diva having to do this for a man. Yeah. Especially someone like Bobby Brown. I know. But also I want to put in context that Bobby Brown was a superstar and he was a new addition. Yeah. They were like the biggest thing. You know what I'm saying? Welcome back. The group new addition consists of five young men who used to sing on the street corners of Boston's Roxbury District. So many of them started on those street corners. Their first single was a delightful song called Candy Girl, which topped the charts in five countries, including the U.S. In May 1983, Billboard reported that Candy Girl was the number one black single and a singer named Michael Jackson with the song called Beat It was number two. That was quite a feat for such a young group. Let's welcome America's most talented, good-looking kids next door, new edition. So when you say, yeah, the gap between their superstardom was way closer, even though Whitney Houston was like, Whitney Elizabeth Houston, you know? Yeah, yeah. But when the bodyguard came out, she became the voice. She, like, elevated to a level that he in inherently knew, like, he will never oh. reach. It was her thriller. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, the only person that could even relate to that at that time would probably be Michael Jackson. Yeah, absolutely. She was the superstar, and he had a couple of hits. So, kind of equal, close enough. 
And then the bodyguard hit, and she shot up into the stratosphere, and he knew instinctively he would never get there. And he just kind of shut down. Yeah, like you said, the the gaps in their projects was so different because it didn't feel like gaps for us with Whitney Houston. Yeah. Whitney Houston was in these movies. That's the thing is she's working. Yeah, and she's like, there's just so many huge things that are happening in Whitney Houston's career. Right. You know? Yeah. And then Bobby Brown gets regulated to Whitney Houston's husband. Yeah. It oh. Bobby Brown, that's Whitney Houston's husband. Yeah. No, I'm Bobby Brown, man. No, for real, I'm Bobby Brown. I don't know who Bobby Brown is. You know? You don't listen to music, do you? I, I wrote the song My Prerogative, Getaway, um, Humping Around, Rony, Rock With You. You don't know me, huh? I married Whitney Houston. Oh, okay. Now you know me, huh? Ain't that about a bitch? <laughs> it also didn't help that he had alcohol issues mm-hmm. and, you know, the drugs coming to play. Right. In terms of the image, up until the My Love Is Your Love era, pretty much for the most part, Whitney Houston's image has been pretty pristine. Yeah. Like, she's been able to hold it together. That's the thing. And she's doing what she things she has to do to keep her marriage but unfortunately because he's so jealous the things that she now has to do is destroying her career and destroying her and destroying her yeah and other relationships i.e robin yeah something that i never really picked up on until doing this research was just how much she had to speak for him and like defend him Mm -hmm. and in defending him it's almost like you kind of get the sense like she feels the need to defend her marriage. Right. So we all hear about your relationship, your marriage with Bobby, how bad it is, how bad he is. Mm. What do you say to all that, Whitney? I don't say anything to it. I'd rather not. The media hasn't been very nice to either one of us. So I'd rather um, not than to do it and to say anything because it is not me, Bobby, and the world is me and Bobby and not the world. Before they even got married, like when they started dating, people were like, what are you doing with him? Right. You know, exactly. he doesn't fit the image. Yeah. In her her Oprah interview, like, you know, she talked about wanting to prove people wrong. Were you also trying to, because the world had said it wouldn't last six minutes, were you also trying to prove the world I wrong? I was determined, determined to prove them wrong. So determined. And after a while, you start to lose what the real concept is of the love. Mm-hmm. And you want to make a statement. You know? Wow. And, yeah. And I was trying to make a statement. Like, you guys aren't going to win. You're not going to do that. We've talked about Whitney Houston a lot on this podcast. It's a sad, sad story. And her whole life, I would argue her whole life, her whole career, she was trying to prove people wrong. Yeah. Oh, I'm beautiful. Mm-hmm. My hair is beautiful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it was these wigs and, you know, mm-hmm. I could be young. I could be hip. You know, yeah. she tried to prove people wrong that way. Oh, I'm not this artist just for white listeners. I could do R&B. Mm-hmm. I'm not gay. Yeah. And that whole pivot. I, I think in this era, this was like the height of trying to prove everybody wrong. Yeah. Across the board. Yeah. 
it's an, um, a huge era, but unfortunate at the same time. Yeah, and I think that's why, like, I feel so complicated about this era, too. Yeah. Is when you listen to the album or you're, like, watching the videos and you watch the performances and the interviews, you're like, yeah, like, I'm I'm eating this up. Like, this is great. Like, if I was a Whitney stan during this time, like, I would be excited. I'm like, oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. She's back. Oh, yeah, yeah. But then if you, like, take a closer look, and I think now also looking at it in hindsight, we know what's going to come up. Right. You're like, oof. Right. Especially delving into the the drugs and stuff like that. And that segue sets me up perfectly. Yes. Segue. (laughs) Okay. So the second point I have here is Whitney's drug use is a major part of this era. So to be fair, as much as we want to hold Bobby Brown accountable, Whitney Houston is not off the hook either. Absolutely. Because they were both addicts in this relationship um and it's important to clear up and reiterate that bobby brown did not introduce whitney houston to drugs right whitney was doing drugs at a very young age yeah uh it was introduced through her own brothers so here's the big question michael did you introduce her to drugs i would say yeah we did everything together so once i was into that then she followed suit and so was the first time she tried freebasing cocaine or cocaine, crack, whatever, was that, are you the one who introduced it to her? I think probably the first time we ever, she ever did it was probably, you know. But you got to understand, at the time, the 80s, it was acceptable. Acceptable to whom? To, I just, in the entertainment industry, it was just like available. And it wasn't like a, a, a bad word like, like it is now. You know what I'm saying? We didn't know. Well, you know, for so many years, people thought Bobby Brown was the one who introduced the drugs, but she was already doing drugs by the time she met Bobby Brown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bobby was... Yeah, he was after. Mm-hmm. And her drug dependency increased mm-hmm. over time, and probably largely because of Bobby Brown. Yeah. But here we go. So Bobby Brown was a heavy drinker. Bobby admits he was stressed when their marital problems made headlines. And that's when, he says, he started to drink heavily, a pint of cognac a night. I did have a problem with um, drinking, um, as far as, you know, just drinking to get drunk and try to wash away, you know, the that that was being said about me, um, being said about my wife. Whitney Houston was a heavy drug user. Light drugs before the bodyguard. And then after bodyguard. Oh, got heavy. Got heavy. Heavy. And after that, I mean, because I knew then we were trying to hide pain. You knew then you were trying to hide pain? I was trying to hide the pain. I would do my work, but it was like after I did the work, like for a whole year or two, it was every day. Drugs? Yeah. Yeah. Every day? Yeah. And you were using drugs to hide the pain? Yeah, I was, I was definitely, I wasn't happy by that point in time. Mm -hmm. I was... I was losing myself. My mom came and got me twice. Mm-hmm. So obviously, when you put two addicts together, this is not good. Right. And I think a perfect look at that is at the 1995 VMAs when they presented Video of the Year to TLC. Right. If you watch that, right. Who they are somewhere else. Right. Exactly. We like it. We like it a lot. We like it. I love it. All right, then. And the winner, we're loud. And the winner is. You know, like I said earlier, like I wouldn't be surprised if all of Bobby Brown's mess 
probably stressed her out, which may have exacerbated her drug use even more. And just in general, like Whitney Houston in this decade is under a lot of stress because she's Absolutely. in such high demand professionally. Yeah. And she's touring all over the world. And people are like, oh my gosh, your voice. But like, it doesn't quite sound like what it used to be. And right. yeah, it's lifestyle habits. But it's also because like, she's just so tired. Yeah. And run down from like literally being all over the place right. singing these like really difficult songs. So, yeah. you know, she's under a lot of stress. And just remembering like their couple persona too, Bobby and Whitney, Whitney and Bobby, mm -hmm. it really starts to cement itself here. Right. And like when you watch candid footage of them, like, yeah, it's like chaotic and it's like funny at times. Like see, you know, any any episode of being Bobby Brown. Like, right. do I like singing along to the sunglasses song? <laughs> Absolutely I do. Hey baby. I need I need to go to back. I need I need to uh, go, go, uh, go, 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 go to get my, my, my glasses, glasses, glasses. Before you go, uh, uh, do you like these on me? me? I think these are tight, but they get down. They work, they work for me, they work, they work for me, they work. They work. I'm hungry. Come on, let's go eat. But <laughs> ultimately, in reality, while Bobby and Whitney, like, they accepted each other for who they were. Right. In their acceptance, they also enabled the worst parts of each other. Absolutely. And just as much as we like to say he wasn't good for her, I don't think she was good for him either. Absolutely. Absolutely not. I think the person that suffered the most was their daughter, Bobby Christina. Absolutely. The things Chrissy had to endure, no one would ever imagine. They didn't take care of Chrissy. They just left her to the wolves. She never had a chance. She'd never seen a normal life. She was the companion of an alcoholic and a drug addict, and that was what she learned to be. You said that you felt that as parents, you and Whitney failed Bobby Chris. We should have been better. We could have been better. At such a young age for us both to have any and everything that we wanted was a blessing and a curse. I'm happy that you made that clear that Bobby Brown did not introduce Whitney Houston to drugs. And that's the big myth. The other big myth is that her voice started deteriorating because of drugs. And yes, that of course had something to do with it, but... The big part is she was touring oftentimes 11 months out of the year. Yeah. And we all know how hard a Whitney Houston song is. She makes it seem easy, but that shit is hard and it's rough on the vocals. And if you're not taking care of your vocals, which she clearly wasn't, because at this point she was she's a smoker. Yeah, that's huge. Right. I mean, I remember when I went to interview her for Rolling Stone and she was smoking, I thought like... Man, you have that voice and you're smoking. I mean, that struck me as, you know, there's a line from W.H. Auden, like a, a crack in the rim of a teacup leads to the land of the dead. And I, I, that was the crack in the teacup. She is doing cocaine. She's drinking. She's partying. She's screaming at Bobby Brown all the time. Yes. <laughs> like, and quite literally, you guys, screaming at Bobby. Screaming at Bobby <laughs> Brown. <laughs> Out of every two years, where do you, one year, Black History Year. All right, all right, all right. Boom. The stresses. So yes, Bobby Brown was a huge stress. Their marriage 
huge stress. Now she's a mother, so that adds on some stress. Yeah. Um, but also the reality of taking care of her family. Yes. And the weight of that. Uh, please watch the documentaries. Please read Robin's book if you guys want more info. And on top of that, her family was very much unwilling to really push the issue of, girl, you got a addiction. Right. Let's get this together, especially because her brothers have the same addiction. Mm-hmm. So they're sitting there and they're just like living off of, you know, Whitney Houston's paycheck and they're on the payroll and they don't really have to do much. So it's a possible like if she got clean, they would have to get clean. They don't want to get clean. They just want to live the life, you know? So it's just like, it was this big circle of toxicity. I mean, I have here, like, as a as another note, is her money issues that she was going through mm. during this time. And, like, Let's talk about the it. fact that Whitney was not only supporting, like, her own immediate family. So that means, like, her mm-hmm. brothers and their wives and their children right. and her dad and her mom. But she's now supporting Bobby Brown's family. That part. So I have Robin's book here. Let's get <laughs> I have Robin's book here. And it's, it's, it's bookmarked. Yes. So um, I have here here note page 253 listeners i will (laughs) insert audio of robin reading this portion of the book um but robin talks about meeting with a woman named cindy madnick who was the bookkeeper at nippy inc okay so cindy said this poor girl isn't gonna have a dime left when you people are finished with her bobby's mother calls up here like we're an atm machine I need my cable, my electricity, my heat paid. She'd go on. I feel sorry for this girl. It's a shame. She works so hard, and at this rate, she won't have anything left for herself. What? That's crazy. (laughs) It's, It's an even wilder thought because Bobby Brown wasn't, like we had just stated, He wasn't like some random art. Like he was huge. He was huge. He was a huge ass artist who could fend for himself. Mm -hmm. But here he was under the Whitney Houston umbrella. Yeah. And her money compared to his. Oh, my Lanta. Like Mm -hmm. it's astronomical. Yeah. So it's like, oh, well, yeah, we're just going to that's our piggy bank now. Yeah. I mean, and I, I feel like the perfect image example of that is like you look at Bobby Brown's house in Atlanta. It's a nice house. Yeah. But you look at Whitney Houston's house in Jersey. It's not just a house. It's like a compound. It's it's an estate. It's a yeah. It's like, yeah. She owns not only this large property, but she bought the property across the street. Across the she street. Owns the, yeah. road, the surrounding yeah. property. It's like insane. Right. So if you're Bobby Brown's family and you're looking at this, you're like, oh, we're good. Right. <laughs> we're set. Exactly. It's also important to note that. Whitney Houston, despite everything, was a super giving person. She gave to everybody. Like, that's the type of person she was. The house, the first house I purchased, Mm -hmm. the bank changed their minds because they felt like I was a risk. Musicians are a risk when it comes to buying things, you know. They really felt like you were black, but I ain't going to go there. Probably that, too. So instead of the 10%, they wanted me to put down 50%, which I didn't have the 50%. Long story short, Whitney flew in and said, take me to that house that you was going to buy. I was like, 
why? And we went through it, and she said, oh, this looks like your bathroom. Oh, this looks like my brother's kitchen. And we went to the side. She said, here. And she gave me an envelope. Open it up. And it was the 50% that was needed to put down on the house. She said, I told you this was your house. And I said, "Wow, girl, wow, girl, I'm going to pay you back, right? Uh-huh. I paid her back. She found out I paid her back from her, her management, management and everything. And she called me and said, you just, you paid me back. I said, I told you I was going to pay you back. What are you talking about? She said, everybody say that. So I could imagine it was hard for her to say no to all these people, especially her family. Like looking at that relationship she has with her father, John Houston, who managed her money. Oh, the spark yeah. version of this is like he was a corrupt man. And at this time, he was allegedly stealing money from Whitney. She loved her daddy. And she trusted him, but that allowed for a lot of foxes to come in the hand house. She seemed to be a bit of an ATM for a lot of people that I saw around her. I don't see how an accountant, you know, drives a Ferrari and has a, a yacht and only has one client. My understanding was that and got together and started stealing money, a lot of money. Was John himself stealing money? Hmm. Um. Which this goes into this story about the My Love Is Your Love outfits. Mm-hmm. John Houston originally said, like, as Whitney was getting ready to tour, John Houston was like, Whitney has to wear the old outfits because she couldn't afford new ones. This new project included some of the funkiest track lane producers dominating the charts. So whatever the plan was, I knew that Whitney had to look and feel fresh. I raised the issue of Whitney's wardrobe and was shocked when John responded that she'd have to wear old gear from past tours as there was no money to purchase anything new. Can you imagine right. an artist of Whitney Houston's caliber, okay, and you're looking at Mariah Carey, who has reinvented her look, right. Janet Jackson, who has reinvented her look, Madonna, who has reinvented her look. These are the women she's going to be compared to. Can you imagine if at mm-hmm. this time Whitney Houston came out looking like I'm your baby tonight, Whitney? Right. Oh, electric right. chair, John Houston. <laughs> are you joking me? The need to resuscitate old attire was the last thing I wanted to bring to Whitney's attention. I needed to come up with a solution stat. Instead of making her feel even worse by telling her there was no money for wardrobe, I said, you've always paid for your own clothing whenever we've toured. How about this time we find a designer who will agree to outfit you, the dancers and the band? What do you say? Her reply, go for it. Luckily, at this time, Robin Crawford came up with the idea of approaching designers to dress Whitney for her tour. And that's how Dolce & Gabbana came into the picture because Whitney listed them as one of her favorite designers. So Robin reached out and was like, would you like to dress Whitney for her tour? And they came to an agreement where Dolce & Gabbana would design and supply the wardrobe for the My Love Is Your Love tour. And that meant they would outfit Whitney and her dancers. Everything would be custom made for Whitney only. Nothing would be sold. And because Bobby Brown was going to be with Whitney, they agreed to make clothes for him that would complement her. 
And on Whitney's end, she would just have to make an appearance during Fashion Week in Milan and attend the after party for their show and exclusively wear their clothes for all on stage and promo events. It's a match made in style heaven and Access Hollywood gets to show you the outfits the world's premier diva will be wearing for her eagerly anticipated world tour. Every single second she's on stage, Whitney will be covered by the work of fashion phenoms Dolce and Gabbana. That's insane. That is. That her father would just say, you know, sorry, like, you can't afford new clothes. Right. And yet, no matter how much money Whitney generated with her record-breaking album sales, sold-out tours, successful movies, national and international endorsements, and private engagements, she needed to make even more to continue sustaining everything and everybody. Another note I have here. Let's do it. This is when also Whitney really starts to develop a reputation for being unreliable. Yes. So at this point, if you were about to see Whitney for a show, she may or may not cancel at the last minute. And Robin told a story in her memoir about Whitney canceling a show 45 minutes before it was supposed to start. One of the cancellations happened at the last minute at a venue that accommodated 12,000. I was there that evening when my ear caught the code words, P1 is a negative. Instantly, I felt the muscles in my belly tighten. I knew her arrival had been delayed, and I had just peeked at the packed lawn full of fans anticipating her arrival on the stage. I made my way back to the production office and was informed that she was not coming. This was ugly. It was only 45 minutes before showtime, and all I could do was take notes on how it unraveled. No one in the crowd booed, but there was an unmistakable, disgruntled rumbling of disappointment, disgust, and broken trust from loyal Whitney Houston fans. They would always say, oh, it's because she's sick and her throat. But when they would pull that excuse, it just further fuels the allegations of these drug use rumors. When Whitney Houston canceled her appearance on Rosie O'Donnell's talk show at the last minute, it turned into a celebrity catfight. The talk show queen versus America's first lady of song. With just 45 minutes to air, a phone call came into the show. Entertainment reporter Flo Anthony. Whitney's excuse was that she just was not feeling well. The show went on without Whitney, but not without Rosie blasting the absent singing star at every opportunity. She's uh, ill. Oh, shoot. I hope she's very ill. Yeah. <laughs> not, not, <laughs> I mean, not that I want her to be sick, but I, I hope she's really got a fever. I'm with you. I'm with you. Then, adding insult to injury, when Whitney's husband Bobby Brown appeared on the David Letterman show later that same afternoon, Whitney was suddenly well enough to accompany him. It was seen as a huge snub to Rosie O'Donnell. Whitney's publicist says the singer was feeling better when she joined her husband that same afternoon. But then she got sick again. And then we also get to the infamous 2000 Oscars incident where Whitney was supposed to perform a medley with Isaac Hayes, Ray Charles, and Queen Latifah at the Oscars. Burt Bacharach is the musical director. And during a rehearsal... Whitney kept messing up the words, and she was fired and replaced Mm. by Faith Hill. We do the rehearsal Friday night. She sings the first 12 bars of um, uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, and she's singing her own notes, basically, or changing the melody substantially. 
Then a couple of other things just went wrong. She came in on the wrong song. And so it just was like a train wreck. And it's just like really awkward when you think about how Whitney is cousins with Dionne Warwick. Right. And if you guys don't know, like Dionne Warwick was a huge collaborator of Burke Bacharach's and Burke Bacharach has done performances with Whitney and Dionne. Right. So it's just like, oh my God, it's so awkward. And, yeah. you know, again, setting up the following era, the Just Whitney era, she has a music video called Try It On My Own. Mm-hmm. And in that video, she is seen on stage singing a song and there's cue cards to Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And that's referencing this incident because in that medley, she was supposed to sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. So it was kind of startling. This was so dangerous. This is live television. And there was no salvation on something like that. She sang in the wrong song. Nobody would know what to do. Even Ray Charles wouldn't know how to cover that and how we would jump around and we'd be scrambling. So, you know, the right decision was made. Uh, of course, that's a very difficult thing to do at that hour and night at midnight on a Friday night and the show goes on Sunday to replace her. This is the, the era where it starts. everything starts getting cringy. Yeah. Considering who Whitney Houston is and... Her legacy as an artist up until that point. Yeah. She's known as the voice. She's is like She's known as the voice. And not only is she known as the voice, but she is known as like a phenomenal live vocalist. Absolutely. That's the thing. Yeah. No one sings live like Whitney Houston. Right. So when suddenly Whitney can't do the thing that she's supposed to be good at, it's like Right, right. Ugh. But also too, like her reputation is she's professional. Yeah. Yeah. She comes in, she gets things done. Mm-hmm. One take Whitney. One take Whitney. She comes into the studio, one take, she's good, going to the mall. Yeah. To go from that, and at this point, too, she is a legend. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So to go from that, now you're in your legend era, like for real, for real, Mm -hmm. and you are falling apart. What? You're getting fired because you can't sing, and you're you're all over the... Like, it's just just sad. And it's just going to get worse in the 2000s. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We're not even talking about the the height of the craziness. Yeah. This is pre-Mad TV era. We've all enjoyed music from the world's number one pop diva, Whitney Houston. Well, she's back, and she's using her golden voice to bring us some great American classics with her double CD set, Whitney Screws Up the Classics. The last big note I have here is that key people leave Whitney Houston during this era. So um, obviously the first person that leaves that was a huge part of Whitney Houston's career and just life in general is Robin Crawford. For those of you guys who don't know who Robin Crawford is, this is Whitney (laughs) Houston's best friend, personal assistant, and rumored but now confirmed Mm ex-girlfriend and she was just a key person in Whitney Houston's life and career like I said and any person any person that worked with Whitney specifically during her prime made it very clear that Robin was her go-to yeah as far as Whitney and Robin the relationship was her safety net that was a whole separate world from who she needed to be in the public for her parents, her family. Robin became very important to Whitney's career. She dealt with the record company. She was the creative force involved in costumes, stage design, developing Whitney's image. 
And compared to Bobby, who, you know, brought this very chaotic energy into Whitney's life, Robin brought calm Mm -hmm. and peace and a sense of order. Mm-hmm. Put respect on Robin Denise Crawford's name. Yes, this is a Robin Crawford stan account, okay? This is a pro-Robin <laughs> podcast, so if you have a fucking problem with that, we are not the ones for you. I love Robin Crawford because she really was, because I was there. If Robin was with Whitney, she'd still be alive. Tell me why, though. Because Robin protected her. I spent time with Robin. She was the classiest, nicest, sweetest, most caring. She didn't have when the, when they said in the you know in the movie in the documentary the brother said she was nothing. Robin was a nobody. She was a nobody. She was an opportunist. She was a wannabe. She was everything. But she cared about her that much and protected her. So I'm I'm a big. I'm so glad she wrote the book and she and everything she did she did with class just like she the way I knew her. Yeah. A nice, nice lady. And the Sparknotes version of their story, to just like set it up, is throughout Whitney's career, there were rumors of their alleged lesbian relationship. Feeding into the madness is the nonstop speculation about Whitney's relationship with her female executive assistant and best friend for 17 years. This wasn't her world. I mean, I brought her into this madness. She goes, what? Why am I the target? What did I do? I said, you're my friend. What else do you want? You play basketball. They think you're a man. I don't know. She's a damn good basketball player. She can beat any guy there is. I love it. <laughs> because she plays basketball, that people think she's a lesbian. She's a very tall, very broad woman. She's been my friend for years. I don't know. Just stuck it out. Obviously, because people love to forget this part, Whitney is not going to come out at this time. Because it will literally ruin her career. Right. So for the people who always like to say, well, Whitney never said anything. In what world do you think Whitney would ever say anything? Let's remember that. Right. Let's remember that. I don't know. They just think we're just, I'm not, I'm not gay and I'm not lesbian. I'm a mother. I'm a wife. I'm a daughter. Lesbian and gay, I'm not. Two titles I can't claim. I'm sorry. I just can't, you know. And if you but were, if you were, I mean, more power to me. I'd say, hey, this is what I am. Love me or leave me. So when Bobby Brown enters the picture, there was tension in the Bobby Whitney Robin triangle. It became a real power struggle between Bobby and Robin. Bobby not wanting Robin around. It was extremely stressful. Them always at each other's throats. Robin felt that Bobby was a bad influence. She really and truly felt he was a bad influence and that he would destroy her. Basically, Robin can only take so much because she is seeing how Bobby and Whitney are descending into darkness together. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that probably just caused her so much distress, especially since she had been there since the beginning. He isolate. She was isolated. Got you. She became isolated. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because they were together, isolated. Mm. So I didn't see as much of her as as I used to or needed to. Clearly, Whitney is no longer listening to her. Mm -hmm. So Robin, during the My Love is Your Love era, reaches her limit. And it really boils down to a singular, like, it's a culmination of things, as Robin says. But there is a singular incident concerning George Michael's shirt. Right. (laughs) So. Freaking shirt. The freaking shirt. So Whitney was supposed to record the remix of If I Told You That with George Michael, like we said earlier. Unreliable. So Whitney ends up not showing up. 
Clive Davis tells Robin to buy something for George Michael as a gesture of respect. He recommends a black shirt. Robin goes to Fred Siegel to buy the black shirt, gifts it to George Michael, and apologizes on behalf of Whitney. The next time Robin sees Whitney, she updates her on George Michael. After I said hello to everyone, Whitney looked at me and said, What do you want, Robin? Nothing, I responded. Everything's cool. George Michael is back home in the UK. I took care of it. I told her that he loved the shirt I gifted him as an apology on her behalf. Now, Bobby Brown is in the room when Robin and Whitney are having this conversation. And as soon as he hears that, he loses it because he does not like the idea of his wife buying something for another man, even though that man is gay. Right. So. (laughs) Out of nowhere, Bobby lost it. Are you fucking out of your mind? He started yelling. You don't buy a man a gift from my wife. Are you crazy? Then Whitney joined in saying, apology for what? I understood exactly why I was getting blasted. They were strung out and out of their minds. There was nothing that I could do to make things any better. I was no longer able to protect Nippy. I had done all I could do, and for the first time, I realized that I needed to save myself. Ignoring Bobby and locking eyes with Whitney, I said my piece. You know, I'm really sick and tired of this shit. I'm trying to do my job, and you're going to let him speak to me this way? I'm done, Nip. I quit. So, Robin writes her resignation letter, and that is pretty much it. (laughs) Yeah. That is the end of their relationship as far as it had functioned up until that point. And it's really sad. After the two decades that Whitney and I had spent together as friends, lovers, partners in crime, colleagues, after the years of living together, standing up, being there, and looking out for each other, this was it. There was still so much more to accomplish, but instead of taking my hand, she was allowing it to fade away. I would highly suggest you guys go back and listen to the Partyguard episodes and the Whitney Robin episodes of the podcast. Um, Again, those are my first episodes that I was on. Yeah, We deep dive so much into Whitney Robin and it gives full context into the situation. But the SparkNotes version, as you said, their relationship was so deep. Yeah. It was twin flames, soulmate type stuff right Mm -hmm. long story short Whitney Houston is still actively trying to keep Robin close yeah right she's trying to like have the best of both worlds like she's trying to like honestly keep Bobby happy right we're not doubting that Whitney loved Bobby and Bobby loved Whitney but yeah it also like let's be realistic here this also serves her on a professional level too right because by being married at least to a man right this will hopefully quiet down you know, these rumors that she's a lesbian. Right. In the four years since their wedding, Whitney has been unable to squash the rumors she and Bobby did not marry for love. According to the gossip, it's a marriage of convenience designed to boost their careers or hide something. And like we said, like this is the 80s, this is the 90s. Like there is no way Whitney could have ascended to the heights that she did if she was just like out and about with Robin, you know? Not at all, not at all. Like put the divas in context, she was not able to do Madonna level 
craziness. No. Right? No. She wasn't able to do that because she was a black woman mm-hmm. coming up in the 80s and the 90s. And you had to present a specific way. If not, you were out of here. You're kibbutz. Like, you know? And her specific presentation, too. Yeah. Was very specific because she was called, like, the prom queen of soul. Like, she yeah. has this background of, like, she's Sissy Houston's daughter. Yeah. Sissy Houston is, like, a minister of the church. And she right. came from the church. Like, what yeah. What are they going to do when people find out that actually your daughter is probably bisexual? Right. Exactly. You know? Exactly. At that time, no way. No way. Would it have bothered you if your daughter, Whitney, was gay. Absolutely. It would have bothered you? Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you would not have liked that? Not at all. Not at all. You wouldn't have condoned it or? No. No. And again, 1997 is the year that Ellen comes out. Oh, yeah. And just seeing what Ellen mm-hmm. had to go through in 97. I'm in a business that, you know, I'm the commodity, I'm the product please buy me, you know? And that's what I kept telling Disney and ABC when everybody was weighing all the... I said, you know what? You know, maybe they'll boycott you for a week or whatever, and maybe they'll... But you can go on and do another show. You can go on, and and life goes on for you. This is my life. I am taking the biggest risk here. And some of her advertisers have backed away, and a handful of ABC affiliates have said they won't run the episode, while leaders of the religious right are fueling the fire. As a Christian, I do believe that homosexuality is sin. The last person that I have here that left the Whitney circle, this wasn't of Whitney's, you know, own doing, but Clive Davis, we have to remember, ousted from Arista by the end of like this era too. So to set this up, for those of you guys who don't know, Clive Davis was the head of Arista and that's the label that Whitney Houston was signed to. And Whitney and Clive had like a very close professional relationship. Like Whitney would even refer to Clive as her industry father. Yeah. You mentioned Clive a lot, um, just so our viewers know who he is. Could you just describe uh, by saying Clive is? To all the viewers who don't know who Clive Davis is, he's the president of Arista Records, and I call him my my industry dad. He's my industry father. So at this time, Clive Davis was 66, and there was this narrative that he was getting too old. Up next, the man at the center of a cutthroat fight in the music business. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but was just forced out at the record company he founded. The fact of the matter is you were too old, right? Wrong. The fact of the matter is that I knew I was not too old. But actually, he was making too much money, so they were trying to cut costs by having him out of the label Mm -hmm. because he was just making so much money. The real reason was that I was making too much money. They wanted to stop my earning tens of millions of dollars every year, and they were trying to come up with a way to cut their burden. Clive Davis not being at Arista is huge Mm -hmm. because, you know, he was there from the very beginning. And even though, like, a lot of people don't like him in the Whitney fandom because of what happened on the day she died, Mm -hmm. namely him continuing his Grammy party as her dead body was literal floors above them. Right. Why did you go on and have the party? Just asking. This was her favorite night of the year. She came out every year. This party was so part of her. So you're saying that she would so that the family... We spoke to representatives of Pat, who was a manager, and mm-hmm. Gary, who was her, her brother. Her and body we, was still upstairs. And 
But we dedicated the evening. Whitney would have gone, would have wanted this party to go on any more than the Grammys should stop. I don't agree with that. But professionally, I will say, I think Clive, for the most part, he, he took care of Whitney and he mm -hmm. did exactly what he told her he was going to do right. when, she, when he signed her on the label. Yeah. So at this time... Whitney Houston is locked in with Arista because she just signed a $100 million contract. And with Clive Davis being out, L.A. Reid is now head of the label. And I personally don't really trust L.A. Reid. No. To me, he doesn't seem like someone who is interested in cultivating and taking care of the artist. Like, he has a great creative partnership with Babyface, but as the head of the label, I think he likes the title yeah. and flash that comes with that more than actually mm -hmm. doing the job. And again, a lot of the decisions that were made during the Just Whitney era, like I am a thousand percent positive that Clive Davis would have never mm -hmm. let that happen. Like there is no way Clive Davis would have been like, yeah, Whitney, do that Diane Sawyer interview. Right. Yeah, Whitney, do being Bobby Brown. Like there would have been absolutely no way yeah. that would have happened on Clive's watch. Mm -hmm. But he's not there anymore. It was so much money spent on that album. You must have known about the drug use. Uh, you know what? I never knew there was any addiction. I never knew it. Um, it was just kind of kept, I don't know if it was kept away from me because I was at the time the president of the label or, you know. Highly recommend you guys, however you may feel about Clive Davis, like do watch his documentary. Yeah. The soundtrack of our lives or the soundtrack of mm -hmm. my life, something like that. But it's like, yeah. oh my God, when you just sit back and watch this and you just see how involved he was like throughout like the history of music yeah. not just like a specific genre but like the history of popular music right it's insane and the amount of like artists he's worked with and they're all different from each other too right, like exactly. wide ranging it's in yeah, yeah. it's incredible yeah however you may feel about the guy but like he is a music legend oh yeah no i think it's super super important to understand clive davis as he was in the industry to understand all these other artists, mm -hmm. all these other divas, right. how divas that weren't necessarily connected to Clive Davis, how they ended up in Clive Davis's like circle, like Aretha and yeah. Dion, like, yeah, 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 yeah. But even the people further outside who weren't like within the circles, how they were then affected by the decisions Clive Davis were making. Yeah. Because in turn, they were trying to copy the, they were trying to figure out the formula. Yeah, like that's how we get Mariah Carey. Right, exactly. Because it's like, oh, how, you made an Aretha Franklin and a Whitney Houston? What? Like, yeah. What's the what's the formula? You know. And just like even saying all of that and looking at all of the artists that Clive Davis has worked with, the artist that everyone always associates with Clive Davis first is Whitney Houston. Without a doubt, I mean the deepest relationship that Clive had with any artist was with Whitney. You know, there was unprecedented success, you know, like finding her when she was you know, still a teenager and, you know, kind of going on this unbelievable ride. And then, of course, you know, the downfall. Creatively, having Clive Davis gone, disastrous. Personally, having Robin gone, disastrous. It's like these huge, huge, huge events happening literally within the same era. I know. And they dipping. They're big hits. They're huge hits, you know? Yeah. I could understand it being a lot if just alone Clive Davis or just Robin left. Like, 
how big that would be for Whitney Houston. Right. But to have both of those at the same time, and then she is already in a dangerous space with drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. She has her daughter. Sylvia, her personal assistant, is trying to rein her in, but she's, like, losing accent. It's, like, all these things happening. Right. And then, boom, it's like she hits a wall. Mm -hmm. But she never is able to recover. She's never able to, like, get up and dust herself off. Right. And be like, oh, I'm Whitney Houston. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, like, nice to have a little tea party every once in a while. So, our next segment is, but we need people to buy the album. But we need the audience. Like I, just, I just took this is the segment where we talk about the album era and how it was marketed the strategies the memorable interviews and appearances first off let's start with the album cover yes <laughs> i love this album cover so much i love it i love this album cover let's talk about it everybody let's open up google images together <laughs> right. and let's look at the my love is your love album cover right well, I really love this because I just feel like it fits with the other minimalist diva album covers at the time. Like exactly. Velvet Rope, Butterfly, Ray of Light. Mm-hmm. And then you see My Love is Your Love. Like, yeah. yeah, they're sisters, girl. Right. So looking at the album cover, I'm like very blue. Yes. It's very blue. Yes. She has a blue dress. <laughs> With the long sleeves. Yes. So for those of you guys who don't know, she actually took this album cover picture like in her driveway, like in the Jersey compound. Like that's the front of her driveway. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's cute. Beautiful shot on the cover. And Thanks. this is actually something that was done at your house, right? Yeah, that's my driveway. On your on your driveway. Yeah, it's on that, that's the street. So I found this interview clip of Whitney talking about her positioning on the album cover mm-hmm. because you know how she's like, sitting low yeah that position is basically her bow because if any of you have watched whitney perform live she does really low ass bows which is a demonstration of her physical prowess um her strong hamstrings and glutes (laughs) whitney the stallion yes Yes. yeah whitney the stallion exactly the the, the stance that you see me in is the end of my performance, when I do it in the performance, uh-huh. I, I do this whole thing and I go down. Well, that's the stance I use. Uh-huh. So I just did that and they just started clicking and that was a shot. There you go. Yeah. And I feel like this album cover, it represents what we're about to listen to. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. It just feels different. Yeah. I love the wig. I know. I love the wig. Oh, well, should we get should we get into her her looks now? Let's go. Let's, let's get, get into, into Let's it. get into the looks. <laughs> let's get into the looks. Okay, so in the My Love is Your Love era she reinvents herself like in so many ways like we said musically Mm -hmm. but also in her looks so for me when i think of this era look it's very like super glam diva legend like that's like the aesthetic that is the pinterest board and so i feel like whitney had two very distinct looks in this era she has the pre-concert first half era and then she has the concert slash second half of the era so her pre-concert like first half of the era so you know remembering what we said earlier where robin got that deal with dolce and gabbana like i'm pretty sure this is before that Mm -hmm. so in the beginning of the era you see whitney wearing a lot of black yeah she loves a pantsuit yes the oversized coats yes i have here it's downtown east coast but we're chilly. Yes. My favorite bit 
is I love her 90s choker. Oh, yeah. Love yes. that. Yes. Love that. Because I remember that. I remember when that was really popular. So just seeing her wear that, I'm like, oh, my God. Whitney, yes. I really like this sleek look because I think she looks really comfortable. She looked down and she looked cool, but she's grown. And like you mentioned, she has the blonde wig. Right. I have blonde Susie Orman Bob <laughs> in my notes. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what are your thoughts on on this round of looks that she has here? This is her diva era. Like, yeah, the diva era. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I feel like this is top two looks in her career in terms of like eras. Yeah. It's like a traditional iconic diva era yeah it's it's giving very much diana ross mm. the supreme mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. oh i am the diva yeah and on top of that they didn't dress her older they dressed her younger yeah so that's a huge key in other eras and earlier eras they aged her up mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and i think it it went with her image of like oh songstress like she wants to look mature she was getting dressed older yeah. but now in this era she's like quote unquote hip you know mm-hmm. i want to shine glitter glamour for comfort so we did a capri pant with with rhinestone with 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 sequins and we did a jacket to go over that and we did a nice bodysuit go over that with a high boot with different, everything's a color thing. It's a color scheme, yellow to green to pink to blue to, you know, just smashing everything together and making it look great. And that's how we did it, yeah. They're, they're geniuses, really. They are. We have to put in context, too, that this is the era of, like, flashy hip-hop. Mm-hmm. The, the era of flashy rap is coming in and you're trying to look good. And so for Whitney to come out suddenly be styled by Dolce and Gabbana and she's like she got the short bob and she got the cute dresses she got the fur she got it's like oh okay and it's the first time really where we saw Whitney Houston super flashy like braggadocious flashy yeah like this yeah and it's just like oh okay we see you out here because like the Dolce and Gabbana looks like that's the later half of the era where she starts being stylized like that so she has like like the fur and it's very colorful like the greens and the pinks and the blues and there's like lots of patterns and she even changes her hair Mm -hmm. so now like during this this time when she's on stage it's like sleeker shorter brown bob wig compared to like the blonde wig that she had earlier on there's like a really funny moment in her mtv all access interview where the guy asked her like you seem to be spotting like a different hairstyle it's different from the blonde and she's like (laughs) well we remember the blonde moment and um that was a moment (laughs) that we will never forget um and hair now i remember when the album when this album first came out you had the blonde yeah 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 that was that was a lovely moment that we all loved and we cherish and we will remember always (laughs) Now we're moving on to like, you know. Uh, this is simple. Yeah, this is, the, this cool. is the color of my hair. Right. The real color of my hair, you know. Nothing happens to it. And right. I do this. <laughs> exactly. There you go. But the colorful vibrancy of the Dolce & Gabbana part of her looks during this time, like, it makes sense because that's going to, like, translate on stage. Yeah, And absolutely. on stage, everything has to be a bit heightened. So Dolce Gabbana. This is, all, this is right? Dolce Gabbana. Everything from the to, to, to the underwear. <laughs> it Dolce, yeah. Cool. A lot of like jewels and embroidery. I noticed yeah. a lot of stuff. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Studs. Mm-hmm. Lots of shine. You have to shine on stage. <laughs> My next point here is that in terms of like the marketing, there 
were certain narratives that they were like putting out here at this time. So the first narrative being that Whitney is back mm. and hip yeah. and better than ever. Yeah. There was no question that Whitney is bristling with energy and soul and passion and fire. She's at the highest level of the game. But nobody does it like Whitney. There's a reason she's who she is. You can't get much better when you're already the best. For me, to them, to the people. She's back to show how it's done. And, you know, Clive Davis, well done, because, yeah. you know, the era started out a little rocky, but they pivoted, <laughs> and wow, well done. So because she's trying to connect with young people, Whitney Houston goes on MTV quite a bit, mm-hmm. and she does several different specials. So she does, like, Whitney TV. How you doing, everybody? I tell you what, I have been excited about this all week. I'm John Norris. Welcome to a half hour, very special half hour here at MTV, featuring a woman who is certainly one of the great voices in pop music and R&B music and gospel music over the past 13 years that we are calling Whitney TV. Welcome, everybody. She's like interviewed in front of a live studio audience and she comes off really nice Mm -hmm. in that interview. Yeah. She's just so personable and charming and funny and you're like oh Whitney we have a lot to talk about the new <laughs> album is called my love is your love there's it's like nice if you guys shirt. haven't heard it would you get great that shirt from? got it from your concert Friday in Atlantic City all right there, there you go all right see <laughs> I'm loving it and then she does the MTV Whitney Houston MTV All Access where they're mm. on tour with her and they're showing behind the scenes bits and I really like that special because she talks about her set list, which is really cool. Does it change a lot from town to town? Or? It changes from, from my voice. Oh. Were there any songs that you weren't able to do in the show just for time or? Well, The really Greatest Love, to... Yeah. you know, it, it's such a, it's like I'll Always Love You. Right. So I had to toss it between the two of them mm-hmm. and I'll Always Love You one. Yeah? Flip the coin or? Well, no, I looked at the this record stats. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> Cause and, I remember you- and she won. My favorite is Fanatic. Mm. And that's a show where fans got to meet and have one-on-one time with their favorite artists. Fanatic. You sent in your videotape to Fanatic. You were chosen. Now meet your inspiration. So many big artists at the time did an episode of Fanatic. Yeah. And Quincy Thomas, shout out to Quincy was a huge Whitney Houston stan. Still is a huge Whitney Houston stan. And mm-hmm. she got to interview Whitney Houston. Whitney, please give me love. Give you much give love. love. Oh, you got it, darling. Oh, I can oh, bless your heart. Oh, my God. They kept talking about you like you was Robert De Niro. <laughs> the fan, the fan, I said, she coming to kill me or what? I just think, like, her and Whitney have such great chemistry. Oh, yeah. And... Loki really happy that it was Quincy because Quincy is definitely one of the more generous, nice Whitney stands because yeah. I'm not going to lie. Like some of you Whitney stands, you're an annoying AF. <laughs> so I'm glad it was not you and I'm glad it was her. So <laughs> oh, <shit>. yeah. <laughs> um, away from all the music, fans, the media, what does Whitney Houston, the person, love to do? Now, I know you like the vacuum. I do. Okay, but... That's a new one on TV the other night. I'm gonna get. It's that thing. It just whirls in there. You don't need any bag. I love that thing. I'm ordering it. I'm ordering it. Shh, girl. I got four. Watch I can, out. I got four. <laughs> you funny. <laughs> And then just here too, I have like the second narrative that was very prevalent during this time is that young hot producers that were very popular 
got to work with Whitney yeah. and it was a lot of like praising Whitney and being excited to work with a legend. Yeah. So you have like Rodney Jerkins and Missy and Wyclef and Lauren being like, yeah, Whitney's Whitney's amazing. Like right. we're so lucky to be working with yeah. her. Like we always wanted to work with her. Plan an album like this, you don't know what material is gonna come in. What we tapped into was that hunger, the passion, the respect that young, great writer-producers, a new breed of writer-producers, have for Whitney Houston. First, I was up at Clive's office, so he played me some new Whitney tracks, and it was, like, real hot. So the inspiration hit me, you know, so I was like, Clive, you know, how long do I have to come up with a record? He said, yesterday. What Whitney also brings to the music is like a depth, like a substance. You know, if she sings about love, it really, it's really about love. You know, it's like you can feel it. It's one thing to have a good track and a good song, but her voice is so strong that I feel like I got to step my track up to even, you know, stand up with her voice. I've worked with a lot of artists. I hope I don't get in trouble for this. But it's something about Whitney's voice that, that um, does something to me. There's no one like her. There's only one Whitney Houston. <laughs> I think by having them like praise Whitney in this way, like everyone knows at this point, like Whitney's amazing. But like when you have these young hot producers at the time praising Whitney in that way, it like gives her credibility with younger people yeah. who, for whatever reason, maybe thought, oh, Whitney's old. Right. But right. like if Rodney Jerkins is saying Whitney's cool, if yeah. Lauren Hill is saying Whitney's cool, like she must still be cool. Right. And it's like a two way street too, because it's not just them saying positive things about Whitney, it's Whitney saying positive things about them. Like I found so many interview clips of Whitney just talking about how grateful she was to work with them. And even though they're young, they're still just as good as the people that she's been working with, which is like huge coming from someone like Whitney Houston. Well, I know that um, Lauren, Wyclef, Missy, Rodney, um, um, all the producers on this album are extremely talented. You know, just because one is older than the other doesn't make anyone less talented. Believe me, Missy has her style, Wyclef has his, Lauren has hers. Face has his, David has his. So it was just, you know, a combination of some very talented musicians and producers. Um, I love the, 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 the young generation of hot producers because they not only keep it today, but they know their old school music too. They know old school music. They go back and they get that old stuff, man. They listen to it and they find out what's original. And I like that. It's important lot. to have that history, that sense Absolutely. of history. Absolutely. You must have a catalog, honey. I definitely give her. Uh, gave her street cred. Yeah. But mainly because, like you said, at this point, there had been such a long time um, since she had made a solo project. Yeah. A studio album. And people just knew her from from the soundtracks. And even though she was like, she was a heavyweight in the soundtrack industry, they still weren't studio full-length albums. Mm -hmm. Even The Bodyguard, it was just the six songs, you know? So the generation at this point is like they know her as the movie star for all intents and purposes you know mm -hmm. so yeah when you see like these up-and-coming hip-hop artists and hip-hop being such a a huge market at the time and then you know these other up-and-coming huge producers who are producing brandy and you know like all these other younger artists absolutely it definitely absolutely gave her 
the street cred that she needed to come out right and be the the quote-unquote hip diva without it being like oh this you know she's trying too hard this older diva is trying too hard you know i took a missy elliott song and it sounds like nothing that i heard on anybody else but you know it's missy i took a white club jean song and we know lauren hill we know all that stuff but it's whitney houston so I took Rodney Jerkin songs and made them Rodney's, but they're Whitney Houston. So everything that we did, we did based on this person has different tape, but it's going to be mine. And I'm going to make it the way I think that Whitney should make it sound. And that's what we did. Okay, you guys. So that ends part one of our era breakdown. We're almost there. We're almost there. I can't believe we only have one more episode talking about our dear buddy Whitney. She's been with us for the past almost a month. So long, so long. Also, um, some of you may have been wondering, like, how come we didn't bring up Mariah? Mm. Yeah. She's coming. Mm -hmm. It's in part four. So thank you guys for listening to us. Just deep dive into one of our faves. Like, we really appreciate it. If you made it this far, again, thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you're interested in following us again, you can find us on social media at Diva Daily's Pod on Instagram, Twitter, Threads, and TikTok. And if you want to talk to us via email or voice message, hit us up at Diva Daily's Pod at gmail.com. But before we get into anything else, Steffi, if anybody wants to talk to you personally, how can they find you? I'm at INN underscore MHO on Twitter slash X, Instagram, and in my humble opinion, on YouTube. File your complaints. To at Poetry Soul 3. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Poetry Soul 3 and on Instagram at Angie.Simone. And if you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, don't forget to rate and review, subscribe, hit the five stars. Please, that will help us a lot. Yes. And on that note, do you have anything else to say? Robin, come to the pod. Oh my gosh. It's been a while. Yes. You can read part two of a song for you that your wife didn't let you write. Right. Absolutely. Read it. Read it on the pod here. Absolutely. Exclusive PDF file. Yeah. Give me the PDF file and I could be the Michelle Williams to your Britney Spears, Robin Crawford. Boom. There it is. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. And. Oh yeah. For shiz, for shiz. (laughs) What's up, homie? Oh my gosh. Well, on that note, and remember divas. So the thing is, a diva has to be good at what she does. 